My guest today has lived in five countries, started three companies, one of them a restaurant that was in the top five on TripAdvisor. And here's what some of his colleagues say about him. David is a standout leader. He delights his colleagues, his clients, stakeholders with positive passion and encouragement to always do one's best. He's a superb listener, extremely well-read, and always offers support, advice, and direction. Here's another one. David was one of the most brilliant sales leaders at Gartner, taking Ireland from humble beginnings to a leading example of sales excellence, being recognized on many occasions for generating rapid business growth. Another one. David's passion to exceed the expectations of both internal and external clients is contagious, and I was always hugely impressed by his commitment to over-deliver. Finally, David is one of the most inspirational leaders I've ever worked with, truly energized by customer value and with exceptional internal and external relationships. He never ceases in his quest to achieve perfection. David is also genuinely inclusive and one of those rare people who will help others achieve whether or not it directly benefits him. David Kenny, you're very welcome to the podcast. It's good to be here. And I think in the future, if I'm not feeling great about myself, I'm, I'm going to uh, replay, replay those comments because they sound amazing and, and something I need to live up to. Well, they're all on your LinkedIn. And the thing about it was I just took a small selection and there's a lot more of them there. So uh, kudos to you. And there's some threads that run through them as well, common threads that I'd like to come back to if it's okay with you. But before I do that, maybe you could share with listeners, viewers, a little bit about you, where you grew up, what that was like. Uh, yeah, so I was born in Dublin. And um, like you said in the intro, I've lived in five different countries. Um, I went... Uh, to university in the UK and then came back and uh, did the same again in Ireland uh, and then lived in France for a while uh, where I was part of the opening team for Euro Disney um, and then went to live in California um, and then Houston, Texas, Canada for a while and then in a very long long and winding route back to Ireland. Um, I originally wanted to be a chef. Cooking is still very much a passion for me. Um, and uh, yeah, it, it's just the weirdest thing ever of, uh, of how I ended up doing what I'm doing in my mind. But the more I listen to other sales people around the world, I realized that it actually, it, a lot of people kind of circumnavigate their way into a, into a career in sales. Um, and, you know, yeah, I was kind of similar. Um, it's not something I'd ever see myself not doing now. Um, I, I love it. It's really, really, really energizing. It's massively exciting. And um, it's changing incredibly quickly. And, and I think it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's a fantastically fun job to do. You said you were part of the uh, launch team for Euro Disney. What did you do there? So um, I was hired directly out of college here in, in Dublin um, and I joined their management training program and it was, uh, it was funny listening to um, some of the other folks that have been on your, your podcast. Um, uh, Matthew Haywood mentioned a whole bunch of, of moving, you know, quick promotions, quick promotions, quick promotions. And that was very much my, my experience at Disney. Um, it was, uh, I ended up doing some crazy things there. Um, I, because I could speak French and English, 
I had um, ended up doing a lot of of training for them, and so um, it, it and it was in purely kind of coincidence. Um, so I ended mm. up doing these crazy huge training sessions of like ten thousand people, um, where I'd be standing in front of these these enormous audiences, um, and uh, you know talking to them about you know the the Disney process, Disney experience, and and what it's like to to work at Disney for like multiple days at a time. I mean, I used to have classes of like hundreds of people um, as you were getting them in uh, through their induction process, their Disney induction process. Mm. Um, and that was pretty amazing. Um, it's tough to follow Mickey Mouse on stage, let me tell you. Um, so yeah, it was, uh, you know, I, I had to get good at getting attention quickly, I think, but I, I really enjoyed it. It was great fun. I, I was curious about Disney in terms of their, their culture that creates that, that, I guess, environment of fun of uh, and they're dealing with stressed people and you know the, the kids I, I just I've only ever been there once and that was in the States not in Paris and and I only interacted with their customer service people but I found them really good yeah and I would have thought it's a very unique environment in which to operate in and I was curious to know about first of all how the culture of working in an organization like that is different to a more mainstream organization. And was the fact that it was in France, did that make it any different to say how Disney might be in the US? I think it did. It definitely did make a difference that it was in France. And you used to get a lot of questions about that from people. Um, you know, it's like, oh, how it's, it's much easier to hire people with that kind of an attitude in the US than it is necessarily in France. Um, and that's true. But you also realize that being kind, being respectful, having empathy, um, you know, having a generosity of spirit is actually universal. You know, that's in every country in the world and it succeeds in every country in the world. Um, and it, it was the same thing in France and, the, you know, the, the same thing in Orlando. Um, you know, you, people would be perhaps more openly customer centric, um, you know, in, in the U.S. properties. But um, in France, you know, you hired people that wanted to do that, that that was their... It, 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 in a way, it was very uh, easy to identify people that didn't have that kind of an intent. But in addition, they also probably wouldn't have come to you in the first place. So one of the things I did at Disney was part of the recruiting um, uh, process for them. So I was, for a year, I was seconded to the recruiting department and we traveled around the world. We had to hire 18,000 people. Um, and so it was absolutely incredible, an incredible experience. But you also realize that the, the part of the magic is actually helping people self-select. Um, you know, if you're not somebody who's going to, you know, embrace that kind of a culture, then you're probably not going to apply. Um, but it was also incredible to see just how powerful that was as you traveled around the world. And I remember coming to Ireland, actually, as part of that recruiting tour. Um, and we had thousands of people waiting in line to come in and interview for jobs. Um, you know, certainly at the time, it was, uh, you know, economically wasn't great here in Ireland. Um, but it was also a lot of enthusiasm for for just what it meant to actually work in the happiest place on earth, you know. Um, and it, it's something that really, really influenced me hugely for the rest of my life. And, and I still, you know, every day think back to things I learned in, in the Walt Disney Corporation. I used to live in the happiest place on earth. 
That was Kilkenny on an All Ireland Sunday, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> those days are a little bit behind us. I'm actually, re I'm really interested, David, that you're going around, you're hiring these eighteen thousand people, and in many cultures where you wouldn't have a huge um, experience of, for example. And yeah. then you come to Ireland, and this is your, your home place, where the nuances of accents and places are going to, at some level, influence how you interact with people. It has to, I mean, at some subconscious level. And I'm wondering how you... Were, were you conscious of that, first of all? And then, how did you deal with it? That is a really, really, really interesting thing to observe. And it is really true. It, it absolutely did happen. So, you know, you have your, your sense of, um, you know, very nuanced sense of self based upon where you grew up. Um, I think one of the things that was really wonderful about that experience of coming back to Ireland as, a, you know, with a, a huge team of people, um, you know, as a representative of that big international corporation, was seeing, was getting an opportunity to see the country through the eyes of other people um, and seeing what the things that perhaps we take for granted, what it actually meant to them and how unique it was and how different the experience was. Um, and that was a really, really powerful thing um, in terms of learning empathy, in terms of understanding um, and having giving yourself permission to actually try and occupy the you know the the, the minds of other people um you know and 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 really try and develop and and understand what what the experience is going to be like for them um i think it's really really hard to do if you haven't had that international ex experience um or you haven't had some kind of training about it i think people that do things you know often you'll see people that they're like you know do things like photography um you know or or even cooking you know it's about preparing something for another person in anticipation of what that other person will see and experience. Um, and I think that that's, you know, kind of a, a building block for empathy that, you know, that really works. It really works well. Um, when you go and live in another country, as you've done, as most people in Ireland have done at some stage, you know, you realize that you have to relearn a lot of things and, and things are different. And I think that makes us as a population, you know, better equipped to, to manage change and to, you know, to deal with transformation and, and um, you know, see opportunities. I still couldn't hire somebody from Tipperary, though. <laughs> <laughs> I'm only kidding. I'm only kidding. Yeah, so long as they would wear the black and amber jersey, I'm happy. Uh, what, what, seriously, on a serious note, where did the interest in cooking come from? Um, I think probably by osmosis from my grandmother, who was a really, really enthusiastic cook. I never met her. She was uh, she died before I was born. Um, but there was kind of a tradition and a thread and like cookbooks and those kind of things, um, you know, in my in my presence um, growing up. And so from that reason, I think, you know, it's kind of one of the things that sparked interest for me. Um, another aspect of it, too, was that, you know, my mom really wasn't a very good cook. So it was one of the things where you were just like, hey, if you you know, maybe there's a, maybe there's a better way. I started at quite a young age sort of wondering, 
you know, does this have to taste like this? Does this have to be this, you know? Uh, so I started, yeah, sort of looking to solve problems, you know, at a, at a relatively young age. Um, and that was, and also just loved it. You know, I just always have. Um, and it's something I think I'll always do. I just really enjoy it. And, and when did the restaurant come into play then? Or what stage did you decide to do that? That was really something that it was um, just a good opportunity at the time. When Linda, my wife, and I moved back to Ireland and we were we are living in Khmer, um, uh, it was one of those things where it was like, hey, if we're ever going to do this, you know, now is the time. Um, and, and so we did it. Um, it's, you know, unbelievably tough, um, you know, and then as the... the uh, economic, uh, you know, wheels began to come off here in a big way. Um, it was one of those things where it's like, hey, this is not going to be sustainable going forward. So it was time to make a decision to to change um, and, and, you know, take that box. But it's something I'm really glad we did. You know, it was great fun. We, we had lots of, uh, you know, lots of amazing experiences doing it. And it was, uh, yeah, it was very positive. I can't imagine what it's like to run a restaurant. Forget about the food preparation side of things. I've often, you know, sitting in a restaurant and you're looking around at empty chairs and you're thinking each one of those is a potential loss of value that you can never get back again. Once the night's over, that's it. And, and, and I think that would cause me huge stress or where people might book and then not show up. What was the toughest part of that for you? You know, it was actually really good coming to it from sales, I think, because from a sales perspective, you have to deal with that kind of disappointment. It's just part of... Um, you know, of the sales process. And so you actually really start honing and trying to understand, you know, what do I do well that I need to do more of, that I need to emphasize yeah. better, um, you know, what works and what gets traction and what doesn't, um, and not respond in a sort of, um, in, in a, you know, overly a negative way. You've got to actually look mm. at this and say, hey, there's some things that I don't do well. There's some things that aren't working, you know, really well. Um, and I need to focus on the opportunities that are going to going to make things work. So in the event that you had a situation, you know, where you had more empty seats than you had full seats, the focus is the full seats. The focus is, you know, what's working um, and just keep keep pushing and, and um, optimizing for that for that seam as such. Um, and, and I think it's it's really good to to um, in, in a sales environment, you know, you need the same kind of mentality. Um, and it's, it's tough, you know, in the, in the restaurant world, because it's all perishable inventory, you know, it's, if, if you're not busy on Monday night, it's over, um, yeah. you know, in the, in the sales environment, you get many, 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 many more opportunities and, and that's, you know, very positive. Um, but learning to deal with that kind of, uh, yeah, learning to, learning to learn from your mistakes, learning to, um, listen without blame. Um, you know, I think were things that were really, really good for me. What was the biggest or most important lesson you took out of that experience? Um, data. Pay attention to data, even in tiny, tiny, tiny little situations like in a, in a you know, single, you know, 50 seat restaurant. Um, as much as you can, you know, try and get as much data out of your processes as you can. Um, and then make sure that you are listening to that data and are optimizing for it. Um, 
because the idea that you're doing something genius and this is art is something that is sub is possible for you know a small number of people um the rest of us really need the data you know and we need to know what what works and what doesn't we need to know where the trends are you know and we need to have that kind of engagement with the people that are buying from us um to understand that and we also need to be looking at our own process we need to be looking at what you know what it is telling us about what we could do better and i think that was something that really really stuck in my mind yeah and is that a very ad hoc process or is it something where you had some classification of a tool that captured that for you and kind of surprised you almost with it where your gut might say this is doing better but the data was saying not alone is that doing better but it's more profitable too yeah i think it's um you know back in the day when i was doing this there there wasn't anything like the 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 volume of data visualization and data and, and you know analytics tools available um and so it was very much a sort of spreadsheets and you know and and um you know, kind of very financially driven kind of metrics and, and things like customer satisfaction metrics, you know, which we started gathering, which is kind of unusual at the time, um, you know, sort of net promoter score type type information. I think the um, now when you see so much more availability of just absolutely unbelievably good and unbelievably quick and easy to use data tools, um, it's, it's amazing to think how how well you can use those to in to understand yourself and your process better i think one of the things that's uh, failing in the world of sales is that data is seen as something that is done to us rather than for us um and i think you are now beginning to see some tools emerging you know like gong like like lead space um you know who i work for now where you can actually you see that data is actually it, it is giving us so much information about what we can do better giving us so much information about what the opportunities are based upon what we have done better in the past and i think that's really 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 cool to to see happening and being driven from within the sales organizations in many instances themselves yeah and i'm curious to know that because clearly the the food element and the restaurant being a beautiful part as well in kenmare was clearly a passion for you and then you realize look it's just not going to give us the life we we want as well how difficult was it to walk away and then to get set up in your next job which i'm assuming was far away from food yeah it was it was actually uh right after the restaurant it was it was back at, i went to work for gardner um and it was actually really easy i mean it's it was um it was tough to do that kind of wind down thing but it actually worked out really well for us um for linda and i it was it was quite easy for us to make that decision um but at the same time it was also great to get stuck back into something very different i remember you know one of the things that used to drive me crazy previously was you know things like expense reports and you know the, that type of stuff i remember um you know doing one when i went back to to work for gardner and and being just delighted at the prospect of like you know wow this is fantastic you know i'm going to fill in these forms i'm going to do it all properly you know so your appreciation for that kind of support infrastructure you know was was really heightened and, and it was like hey this is actually something that's going to work really well you know I'm, I'm going to enjoy this and that was pretty positive um i think if you haven't actually run your own business it's really easy to take for granted all the things that are in an organization that get done for you, you know? Um, 
and so yeah it's it's uh, it, it was actually pretty great i was i relished the opportunity to be honest mm. i know you had a position of responsibility in terms of other people at disney what stage would you have said that you were kind of finally fi finally embedded in as a sales leader what role was that as a sale, finally, I, I think it was probably when I was in Houston and I was selling into the energy sector, energy and healthcare, um, mm. and that was the one where it was like, hey, you know, even though it might not necessarily have been a sort of a traditional organisation in terms of you know number of people reporting into you from a sort of org chart style perspective, you had to exert a lot of very subtle leadership, um, mm. and you had to bring people with you. Uh, mm. And and you were involved in the recruiting process, and you were involved in the you know in the uh, a lot of other ancillary aspects. You know they're you know very much mm. associated with sales leadership. That was one where it was like, hey, this is actually I really like this, and I'm quite good at this. You know I I am I am enjoying this. Yeah, and a chunk of what made that good for me was actually um, you know was actually being good at selling. You know, so it was like being good at encouraging people, being good at motivating people, being good at engaging people. And that was something that, yeah, that just, you know, kind of expanded that those horizons for me um, and, and allowed me to achieve quite a lot, you know. Um, do you think if you were to look back at your childhood, was there, were, were there clues in that that you were going to go on and be good in sales or was it something that you learned later on? There, I yeah, there were actually. I think there probably were some clues at a relatively early stage. I think it was less, not necessarily as much sales as it was about sort of business. Um, I was really interested in how businesses worked and and what you know what made them tick and what functioned. Um, so I remember reading books like you know like um, like Lee Iacocca's book at a relatively young age, you know, and it was kind of like who on earth you know reads that when you're like you know in your early teens or something. But I was fascinated by that kind of. Um, that kind of information, um, you know, and understanding some of that, understanding what, you know, what, what their world, their worlds were like, um, you know, mm. so I kind of got a, got a kick out of, of some of those things. And that may, might have been an early mm. clue. Yeah. Yeah. And speaking of business books behind you, there's quite a few of them on, on, on shelves. If you were to pick one that made a, a real impact on you, what one would you, what, what's the standout? A business book. Actually, there are a couple of recent ones. Growth IQ by, by Tiffany Bova, I think, is absolutely incredible. I had the opportunity to work with her at Gartner. I'm not familiar with it. What's the main theme of it? It's really interesting in terms of understanding how companies, get, how their mindsets and how the overall corporate mindset drives a sort of growth agenda for a company, understanding what drives growth. Um, I think there's another one that's incredible um, by Carol Dweck is her name, and it's called uh, Mindset. Uh, yeah, I which have it is, there, actually. It's, it's, it's one of my, this one, one of my favorite books. Yeah, absolutely. Just extraordinary, yeah. um, extraordinary. And it's really uh, good. She has a couple of other books as well that are really, really good. She's a psychologist. I think she's based now down, down in Australia, I think. Could be wrong, but the location doesn't matter. She's really, really good. She's a very humorous way of writing. Very kind of folksy almost. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's very, a, yeah. a lot of easy to read type stuff. Um, yeah, it's psychology for lay people. It's, yeah, and it's good. I mean, that works for me. I think it works really well. Some of the other ones, too, would be things like Eliyahu Goldrash, you know, The Goal, um, way back, which was one where you were like, hey, this is really, this is a super complex process, 
that can make a huge difference to how the world functions. Um, and so that was one for me that was kind of uh, very influential, you know, relatively early on. It's like, wow, there's a way that you can make things work and stage them better so that they deliver more of what everybody wants. And that was, that was a pretty cool realization for me. Cool. Uh, you mentioned a few moments ago about when you sales, as first you were in sales leadership was you were in Houston. Yes. And I seem to recall that when you were in Houston, you also volunteered at a cancer center visiting cancer patients. Uh, where did that come from, if you might, don't mind me asking? Yeah, um, well, that was really one of those, you know, slightly Faustian packs. My sister had had breast cancer and, and we're very close. And so it was one of those things where, you know, I will do, I will engage more, you know, with this. And so I did a bunch of fundraising for, um, for cancer charities in the US. And then I took a year out and volunteered at the MD Anderson Cancer Center. Mm -hmm. um, it actually ended up driving a lot of, you know, amazing growth for me, but it, personal growth, um, but it also drove business growth too, because I ended up selling to them as a, as a, as a client um, subsequently. Mm. So it was, yeah, it was, it was incredible to learn and observe and see that from, uh, from inside the machine as such. And you were also involved in an animal assisted therapy group. Did that come from your, you had, a, I presume, a prior love of animals and that came or was it? You know, which came first, chicken or egg? Was it the, were the animals first, then that came, or was it the other way around? It was kind of simultaneous, actually, I think. It was, um, my wife was really involved, my now wife um, was very involved with this animal charity, and she continues to be involved with other animal charities now as well. Um, and it was an opportunity, I had gotten a dog um, who I was really close to. I've always loved animals. Um, and so it was, uh, it was a case of, I want to share, you know, this, this amazing dog um, with other people. And so that was what really opened up that opportunity for me to do that. Um, it was a lot of fun. And are therapy dogs different to, are, are they specially trained is what I'm really trying to ask. And if so, how are they different? Uh, there are some dogs that are specially trained. This this charity specifically w wasn't, you know, that kind of work. And um, this charity was focused on people's personal pets that they did a lot of temperaments testing with, uh, temperance mm. testing. So they would temperament testing at least. They would actually go. You know, the, the deal was the dog had to be yours. And they had to be, you know, of a character that was, you know, wasn't going to get spooked going around the hospital using elevators, those types of things. Um, and so that was really what the requirement, you know, was for them. So you brought your pet to visit people in hospital. Um, and the deal really was that the, the, the pets themselves often would become quite the star of the show, um, depending on the different types of situations you find yourself in. Um, but yeah, it was, uh, that was very much the style. There are um, uh, animal assisted therapy dogs that are incredibly well-trained and really, really highly, you know, highly skilled. Um, but yeah, that wasn't what the focus was for this charity. Interesting. I want to go back for a moment. You mentioned uh, you'd worked at Gartner and one of the testimonials somebody left for you on LinkedIn mentioned that you, you seem to come in very early on in Gartner in Ireland and, and build it up. Uh, talk to me about that, what that was like in a, in, where you've got this really, really well-known brand, but you're kind of starting from scratch. Yeah. How, how do you do that? I've never, I've never been involved in something like that. 
It's actually, that was a really fun, um, fun experience. I think one of the things was I was working for a guy who, who's just an absolutely extraordinary leader, um, uh, who's the one that hired me at, at Gardner, um, Paul Gunstone. And he was, um, you know, just a very, very, um, you know, classically trained sales professional, but he had had an, a pretty significant military career, um, and so he um, just had really, really, really well refined leadership skills. Um, and that was one of the, you know, opportunity that, that created a huge opportunity for me. Um, I learned so much from him um, and he, you know, helped me and, and you know, uh, drove my ambition to succeed because he was somebody who just was, you know, a really accomplished sales leader who just got rid of barriers, you know, to your success. He mm. created opportunities for success. Um, mm. And that was really, really, really fun. And that was part of what drove my passion for selling data, for selling that kind of uh, service, etc. cetera. Um, mm. And then over the course of time, relatively quickly got to believe, you know, believe in the product, you know, much more. Um, mm. I've been a customer of Gardner, like every, like uh, like everyone, you know, in the, in the tech sector. I've been a customer of Gardner for a long time, um, and so I knew I knew what it was like to consume the, the service. There was just an awful lot more to it that I'd ever seen before, and I took a huge amount of pride in in developing that market here, and it was really good. It grew really quickly. What would you say then was the biggest lesson you learned from working with Paul? Um, biggest lesson, I think, is what it is, is almost, uh, I think, the idea of servant leadership in sales. Um, it was something that Disney had from in its leadership training. Disney focused a lot on what it called the inverted triangle, um, you know, which is the, uh, you know, the leadership is, is the purpose of leadership is to enable the, you know, the, the front line to function better. Um, and I think that was one of the things that I learned from Paul. Paul's focus was always, what can I do to help you do better? Um, you know, that was absolutely the focus he took. I mean, of course, there was a requirement to, you know, deliver accurate forecasting. Of course, there was a requirement to do, uh, you know, all the leadership things that you're supposed to do, hiring people, etc. But a huge chunk of his time was actually helping you be better as a salesperson, helping you be better in your, you know, developing accounts and, and your, your go-to-market strategies. Um, and it was really, really good to work with that. You, every conversation you went into, you approached it as an opportunity to learn and to grow, you know, rather than, you know, the, the you know, banging on tables kind of, uh, you know, demanding forecast type stuff, which I think can yeah. become so toxic in sales and drives such a crushing um, uh, blow to salespeople's spirits, um, you know, and, and that's something that he never did. You know, he just, mm. it, it, it wasn't ever gonna happen. Mm. And how do you tread that line though, between you know, not banging the drum, but at the same time, getting the most out of people and, and holding people accountable, I guess, is what I'm trying to ask. I think it's tough. Uh, you know, there's no question it's difficult. I think, um, you know, you, you've had um, some some folks on on your podcast recently, like um, Tom Castley, who who talked about you know that sales stages were for were really invented by finance to try and you know sort of put manners on sales in a way. Um, 
I think it's very easy to fall into the trap of being a sort of junior CFO, um, you know, and 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 forget that you're there to coach and lead people, um, you know, to greatness. Um, and and that is a really really fun thing to do. Um, yeah. How do you how do you draw the line? I, you know, I think everybody comes to a sales job knowing that there is a requirement to achieve goals. Um, the the question is, you know, are they are you competent to do that? And if not, then what skills do you need in order to make that work? Um, over a period of time, I think the people that are able to do that will self-identify, you know, and they'll they'll you know deliver and they'll start making great stuff happen. Um, some of the data that's coming out of sales at the moment, I think, is quite illuminating. In this, you know, I think there's some some recent research from Forrester where um, I'm pretty sure it was Forrester. The majority of sales people's time, sales managers' time, is spent with sales people that aren't performing. Um, so it's it's you know do you focus on it's a going back to the kind of restaurant story focus on what works you know mm. so focus on enabling more of what's great rather than necessarily um trying to solve the problems and i think that level uh, mm. you know the, the sort of purely financial forecasting mentality can actually drive the wrong behaviors very quickly yeah you mentioned actually self-identify a couple of times in our conversation I'm guessing it's something that you're a big believer in, that you're creating systems and processes that allow people to identify in or identify out, depending on, 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 on what their own personal goals are. Absolutely. I think for me as a salesperson, um, well, I do the same thing when I'm prospecting. You know, it's, it's funny when, you know, when I'm, when I'm engaging with a customer, uh, 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 you know, a, a future customer, um, I think one of the funny, one of the things that I find amusing sometimes is when people fall over themselves to not appear as salespeople. So it's just like their title is anything but salesperson. Um, I tend to actually try and make that kind of clear up front to people, um, you know, because for me, it's like if, you know, it, it, one of the easiest qualification processes is, are you looking to buy something? Because if you're not looking to buy something, then, you know, do we want to be talking as such? I mean, plainly, there's a relationship opportunity. There's learning opportunities, absolutely. But at the same time, it's like, hey, you know, if if I have a salesperson, you know, on my on my job title, my LinkedIn profile, then you're more likely to realize that I'm actually going to try and sell you something. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, so the self-identify part carries all the way through. I think it, we often spend an enormous amount of time trying to persuade quite poorly qualified prospects to you know buy from us when in reality it's probably better to say let's stay in touch you know at some point in the future it may be appropriate but it it, it maybe isn't now um mm -hmm. you know and move on to what does work mm -hmm. talk to me about the next step up for you then after gartner what was that and uh, how is it different to your experience at gartner for example yeah, it was interesting, actually. I went to, I decided I wanted to kind of get a lot more exposure to, to different types of sales organizations. Um, and so I started doing consulting and interim roles um, and got exposed, you know, as a result, had have had some absolutely amazing experiences to go and see, you know, how other companies do sales of all different shapes and sizes and and you know, volumes and, and profitability and all the rest of that stuff. 
So it's actually given me like a, a really, I think, unique perspective from my perspective, um, you know, a, a unique view of the world of sales and, and you know, across multiple different types of organizations. Um, and it's been really fun. Um, and you see the same things being done again and again and again and again. Um, and they deliver somewhat, you know, a disturbingly consistent outcome in many instances. Um, but in other instances, you know, it's, um, you know, there's new and refreshing different things that got shown up. Um, I was doing quick tally the other day, and I've actually been involved in in go-to-market and sales processes in 25 different organizations. Um, so for me, that's like that's pretty good. I'm kind of I kind of like that. You know that 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 um, has given me a really sort of rounded perspective. So it's it's a yeah, it's a fun thing to have done. In working with multiple sales teams and models, what's what surprised you the most? As in something that you weren't expecting and then it stood out uh, as a positive? Well, there's loads of things. I think one of, the, one of the ones that's most bizarre is that there is no, that we don't learn from each other well enough. Um, as salespeople, we don't talk to each other in a kind of open-minded, I want to learn better kind of way. Um, and and that's kind of difficult uh, to see that, you know, that revisited pretty continuously. Um, I, the other part of it is too, is how quickly we jump to technology to solve problems that aren't technology problems. And so we kind of think, oh, we're, we're gonna, well, we're putting in a new CRM system, you know, and, and it'll be so much better. And it's like, no, it isn't. You know, you're just basically, you know, you're, you're putting lipstick on the pig until you deal with the underlying issues. You know, you're you're not gonna, you know, you're not gonna get the results that you you want to get. Um, the other thing is how successful founders of companies that can sell. You know how what a difference it makes to their early stage success when they have had that kind of experience and they know how to sell. Um, it is really, really incredible to watch that kind of enthusiasm <clears throat> and passion and knowledge um, and vision, uh, you know, as when it, when it meets the market to see how the kind of action that that, that drives, it's pretty powerful. Mm. Is it something you'd fancy going back to doing again in the future, that kind of interim role, consultant role? Uh, yeah, it could be. It could be. I think one of the things for me, I'm terminally curious. And so it is, um, you know, to, to my to my own chagrin, I think, in, in, in some cases, um, I love getting understanding and trying to get stuck into, you know, business problems and seeing how businesses work and, and what makes them tick and what doesn't and what the underlying issues are. Um, and so sales is a really good place for me to do that um, because you get an endless, you know, procession of place of, of opportunities to, to learn and, and understand. And that's something that, you know, I, I, it, when I am taken away from that, I find it difficult. You know, I miss it a lot. Um, and also, too, working with teams. You know, I really enjoy working in a team environment. I really enjoy that interaction and that kind of growth and learning. Um, and, you know, when you move into those roles, sometimes it can be quite difficult. Um, an extraordinarily brilliant lady <clears throat> who I had the pleasure of working with as a client in Gartner, um, who's gone to be the founder of a, a really, really successful company in the UK. Um, she once called out to me, you know, said to me, the role of an interim executive is not to be liked. 
Um, and I remember thinking, you know, that that's a really, it is a very accurate way to capture it. You bring people into those roles um, to solve a particular problem, um, not because you necessarily, you know, want to want them to be best friends with anyone. Um, and, yeah. and that makes it sometimes a bit tough, I think. Yeah, to, uh, as, as a foodie, you'll appreciate making an omelette, you're going to crack eggs. And I think it's like that. Yeah. Um, it's, it's no place for people who have a need to be liked. Yeah, sure. it, it isn't. Um, and for that reason, I think sometimes it's tough. I think as salespeople, you know, that often being liked, you know, that very first part of the sales cycle where you build rapport. I mean, to a certain extent, we're saying be liked, you know, um, and and, uh, you know, so I think as a sales leader, sometimes that can be tough, um, you know, because it, it, it's, it's somewhat at odds with who we are as people. Mm. Tell me, if you were Minister for Education and you could make one subject mandatory on the Leaving Cert curriculum, what would it be and why? Happiness. I would make learning to be happy mandatory. Um, and there is an awful lot written about this. There, this is a, a very, very realistically achievable science right now. There is some incredible books, um, The Happiness Factor by Shauna Chor, um, you know, which, which go through the science of happiness. I would make that mandatory. Um, I think very often we abdicate responsibility for our happiness to others. Um, you know, and it's, uh, the, the, you know, the idea of not, you know, of, of t having the opportunity to teach people that at a very large scale, I think it would be incredibly seductive um, and would drive some incredible changes in society. Um, because I think, you know, as a population, we have a propensity to be happy. I think people here tend to be quite positive, quite, have quite a positive outlook. Um, but I think actually learning that and owning that um, as individuals would be really powerful. What does happiness mean to you? Happiness means feeling good in myself, you know, feeling, uh, having a positive view as to what's going to happen in the course of my day, knowing and also knowing myself well enough to know what makes me happy um, and what doesn't. I, I think one of the things that can be very disconcerting in, in organizations sometimes is in an effort to sort of celebrate success and, and um you know, and, and demonstrate positivity that you end up with, um, you know, these kind of um, activities which are, you know, isn't this wonderful? We're all going to go and, you know, sort of um, hang around on a, on a beach in the Maldives for, you know, for, for five days. That isn't happiness for everybody, you know, um, and understanding that I think can be, you know, is, is tough. Um, you know, how do you how do you enable that at scale? Um, and there are introverted salespeople, you know, they exist. There are most of them are, you know, most salespeople are pretty extroverted, but there are many that aren't. And there are very introverted people working in organizations and, and what is seen as being you know, positive experiences for the majority may actually be hell on earth for, you know, for, for a certain percentage of the population. Um, and knowing that is really good. You know, knowing that about yourself before you start a role um, is a very positive, thing, positive outlook to have. Tell me, David, in, in terms of what you're doing currently, what's given you the greatest sense of accomplishment and satisfaction? I think um, at Leadspace, the seeing how we can use data to drive a level of market account customer and prospect understanding um, 
is absolutely amazing. Um, you know, Leadspace is a company that has an incredibly deep um, level of expertise and, and experience in all aspects of, you know, artificial intelligence and data design, um, you know, machine learning and, and the associated skills. I think it's extraordinary to see how much information and how many connections you can make that drive vastly more profitable and vastly more successful outcomes for companies. Um, when you pull all of those skill sets together, it's very unique. They say everybody has a book in them, David. If you were to write one, what would it be about? Um, if I was to write a book, um, I've thought about this quite a bit recently, actually, because the, the CEO of, of Leadspace, um, in, in one of my conversations with him, he, he was going, you know, you should write a book. Um, and I was thinking, uh, you know, what would I write a book about? The, the moment at the back of my mind is, is an idea of like the meeting. So if you were to build up in an almost sort of a, a reverse order, how people prepare and the mindsets of people as they get ready to attend a meeting um, is just something that is kind of stuck in my head. I think the everyday ordinariness is actually very interesting and unique in in uh, people's minds and and you know understanding how those different mindsets experience the world in a different way is something that you know i, I inherently find quite interesting um so yeah but th this is not something i'm going to take some time off to do anytime soon but you never know could happen in the future what, what prompted you to pick that particular topic being that it's so everyday and so I won't say bland, but it's not something that people would kind of go out looking for a book about necessarily. Yeah, I think it's, uh, for me, it's interesting. The observation component of it, I think, interests me. Um, it's just something that's captured my imagination, I suppose, particularly with lockdown. Um, I don't think the world is ever going to be the same as it was, you know, before this. Mm. I think the, certainly the world of work has changed, um, and, and I don't think it, it will, you know, snap back to what it was like before. Um, and I think people's awareness of what of how they spend their time is much more heightened. Um, and so I think there will be a, coming out of this, you know, you can see the possibility for a significant pushback on, you know, a lot of things that we've done in the past. They just haven't been effective uses of uses of our time. Like when you look at people spending three hours a day commuting, um, you know, they've managed to not do that for the last two years. Are they voluntarily going to go back to doing that or are they going to fight like cats and dogs to avoid it? And I think it's the latter. Um, I think meetings might also suffer a similar fate, which is, you know, I don't need to fly, you know, to some other country for, you know, and spend like, you know, eight hours traveling in order to attend a meeting when I can just do it virtually. Um, and I think one of the things that's, that's kind of made me think about, like, how did we get ever, how did we ever get into that mindset? Um, in a way, I, I was talking to, uh, to a customer recently, um, specifically about that, you know, and, and how they needed to enrich their, their sales process to make a smaller number of meetings of greater value. Um, and I think that kind of tipped my mind, made me think of the idea of, you know, the understanding what mindset people come to meetings with in an amusing way, um, in a sort of observational way. So that's kind of, yeah, that's, it's uh, something that's occupied my mind, I suppose. And in terms of the past 18 months and that experience, what it would you say, what has been good about it and what would you like to keep? 
Yeah, interesting. I think what's been good about it is um, is quite a few things, weirdly. I think the idea of embracing remote work, um, I think has actually ended up being quite productive for an awful lot of people, um, surprisingly so. Um, I think it's really required leaders to change how they lead in many instances. And I think that probably has created a bigger opportunity for better quality of leadership, which is more outcome driven, perhaps, than, than, than it was in the past. I think the sort of leader supervisor versus the leader visionary, um, you know, has taken a bit of a hit. I think the leader visionary, um, you know, is is going to emerge in a, in a much stronger position um, than they than they were in before this all happened. Um, I think the awareness also of how much we rely on people to you know support our everyday life, many of whom aren't paid that well, many of whom aren't really um, you know given the respect they deserve. You know, and I think, um, you know, at least in the short term, it's driven a certain awareness around that. Um, and I hope going forward that it might produce the kind of shift, you know, a shift in, in priorities, um, you know, for our countries and our economies and our companies. It also requires leaders, I think, to be a lot more trusting of their staff. And I think that partly it, it's kind of, again, one of those chicken and eggs things, because I think partly what, what has contributed to that lack of trust in some quarters, not clearly, it's not universal by any stretch, is a kind of a learned helplessness that many organizations created. So they had this, so your boss was sitting in this room overlooking the floor where they could see everything that was going on. And it almost created this parent-child type environment where now it's adult-adult, it's different, it's, it, and it has to be different. And I, and I think that's a good thing for not just for the sales leaders, but also for, for the reps, employees in general, yeah. who've, who, who now know that they have to step up. And it's, it's almost to me, it's like the difference between secondary school and university, where secondary school, you have the teacher who's in that parental role, and you go to second, uh, to university, nobody cares. You, you're only, they only care about what you achieve in terms of results. Yeah. And I think that's, that's a similar thing, which is, I think it's good all around. Yeah, I think it is really good. I think that's been really powerful. I think as a, you know, as a leader in an organization, it's, you know, it's very easy to fall into a, into a situation, you know, where there is no impetus to actually change. Um, mm. And I think that, you know, that the, the now there is much more of an awareness of, you know, I need to know what I want from people and I need to know, you know, how I can help them deliver that. Uh, the the thing that makes that concerns me a little, though, is there is so much that we learn <clears throat> as people in an organization. There's so much we learn from the uh, informal processes, you know, from just seeing other people do smart things. And I think that that has, has been broken in a lot of, a lot of organizations yeah. and it can be incredibly lonely and difficult to actually pick up on those things if you're not engaged in those processes. Um, and I think technology has a big role to, to play in yeah. solving that, but it hasn't done it yet. Yeah, no, for sure. I remember when I worked now, again, the technology wasn't there. so. If you take that out of it, I remember when I worked in Motorola, it was 95 I joined them and I reported into the UK office, but I was stationed in, in, in Dublin. 
and therefore I was, I was remote from the head office where everything went on. And I found that, that I could probably go to two days on my own working on whatever. But the third day, I, would, I used to have a little small office in the Motorola factory in Swords. I didn't work there. It just I had a, a, a place. And I would go in there just so I could... And I'm, I'm not the most social of people, but I would go in there just to see people and say hi to and go into the canteen and have a cup of coffee and see, see faces. Yeah. And, uh, and, and I don't know that technology can replace that, that three-dimension touch that we all... Because we all give up an energy. When you're around people and they're in a good mood, we can pick up on that. But I don't know that technology can transfer that. Yeah. So yeah. It, it goes a long way for sure. We wouldn't be having this conversation like this otherwise, but it's not quite the same. And uh, I think we're going to have to figure out that what that hybrid role looks like. Yeah, and I, right, no, I think I, we're going back. No, I know. I also, I no, I totally agree with you. I think, but it's a really nice example of you know you're going into a place where you you probably you know Motorola you didn't really necessarily have that much in common with the people that you were visiting in that environment but it was just important to know that you know that you they were there for you i think you know what that looks like now if if you imagine you're in a situation where you're going to do that maybe once a quarter what that kind of engagement would look like would be very different it, and it almost puts you, in my mind, it makes me think back to when I, you know, was doing a lot of consulting uh, work and, and you would be given these kind of whistle-stop tours of, mm. of facilities, you know, are, are given sort of intros by people. And they had, many of them had kind of a patter already prepared because they'd done this a good few times and they'd walk you through that. I think it's, we're going to have to design that re-immersion, you know, or, or you know, design that process mm. more carefully as to what it's like if you are one of those hybrid workers, how you re-engage with, you know, with mm. your, your um, you know, face-to-face -face workforce. Yeah, it is interesting because as you're saying that, I was thinking, even with my Sander colleagues, I would physically see those maybe twice a year when we get together for internal conferences and meetings and so on. And it's, it's a blast. It's, it's great fun. We go out and we'll have meals and chats and the banter's great. And uh, I, I can't imagine that I would have done this for so long had that not existed. But yeah. it's certainly not an everyday occurrence. So I, I, you're, I, I, think, I think it's to be figured out. Tell me, David, I'm, I'm conscious we're uh, low on time. A couple of quick questions to finish up. What do you like to do to relax when you're not working, uh, apart from cooking? Yeah, well, it's still reading a lot. Um, uh, and also my dogs still. Um, you know, one of the advantages of living in such a beautiful location is there's lots of opportunities to go out and experience, you know, um, the, the earth's beauty. And, and this is a definitely a good place to do that. Um, yeah, so it would definitely focus on that kind of activity. Um, we would normally do some traveling. I mean, that's obviously kind of shut down, you know, in, in the last while. Um, but it's, uh, you know, still something we, we like thinking about and planning for when that does um, open up again. Um, and, you know, it's, yeah, it's just, it's a really nice place to be. Um, and it's made me really deeply grateful for the opportunity to live here. You know, it's it's very, very beautiful place. As, as, as an amateur photographer, I, I envy it because it's, it's, it's an absolutely stunning location. And uh, you have so much on your doorstep. Um, 
As somebody who I know who has listened to others on this podcast, you've mentioned a few of them, you, you know what my final two questions are. <laughs> so the, uh, your house is burning down, your family are safe, your dogs are safe, you got your phone, you got time to run and back in and grab one object, what would it be and why? Um, I think it, it would probably be some pieces of art um not necessarily just because of their value but also because of the fact that i would hate to think of some of other people never getting a chance to see them um okay. uh you know and so there's an element of um yeah of, of wanting to protect them if you could grab one piece of art what describe it what what is it um, it's actually, um, it, it is my wife's and it is, um, a, uh, first nation necklace that is very, very old that she bought in, in Santa Fe some time ago. Um, and it is something that it's a bride's necklace. Um, so it is one of the things that anytime I look at it, I always think it, it, it if you could ever pick up something and, and feel its memories, that it must be full of some of the most incredible memories um, and experiences throughout its existence as a thing. Um, and so for me, I think that would be one of the ones that I would probably rush to grab out of a desire to, to sort of, um, yeah, to protect, to protect that, that yeah. existence yeah. in a way uh, for yeah. me. Yeah. The, the heritage of it is really important. It sounds. Tell me, uh, last final question, David, before I let you go. You, you, I know you're an avid reader, and you said hopefully you'll someday you'll, you, there's a book in you. If there was a book written about you, what would you like the title to be? Um, kind. I would like That's the title like to be it. Kind. One word. Um, because it's, you know, it, it, kindness is a really powerful thing. It's a powerful force of change. Um, and I think we can often get fully caught up in, you know, the existentialist panic of, you know, living in, in a, um, you know, a very success driven culture. Um, and I think it's really important to remember that, you know, we exist because other people, you know, were kind, other people did selfless things. And so, you know, going forward, the, the best the best version of ourselves is the one that we manifest in kindness, um, in being mm. kind to ourselves, kind to other people, you know, kind to uh, the world around us. I think it's a it's a super powerful agent of change. Mm. I think we could all do it more of it, and we could all do it more, for sure. David Kenny, thank you so much for being my guest today. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. You're just chock full of insights stories absolutely loved it thank you very much thank you very much it's been really good fun to talk to you and uh, yeah keep it up because it's just one of the most uh, fun things that i listen to so thank you very much